0: help people access material that might, under other circumstances, be too painful or too armored in shame to be able to access. And that can lead to profound psychological breakthroughs. There is a, a deeper shift that can happen that allows them to actually treat the cause, right? When you treat the cause, you don't need to keep going back and paying 500 bucks a month to get an IV.
1: You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hands down, ketamine is one of the best drugs on the planet. This amazing anesthetic can relieve pain without the same risk of respiratory failure as opioids, which has earned it a spot on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. Overwhelming evidence also suggests ketamine can rapidly reverse suicidal thoughts, making it a potent treatment for PTSD and treatment-resistant depression. Last year, a specialized blend of ketamine called S-ketamine was approved by the FDA to treat depression, the first new major depression drug in more than 30 years, but its use has proven controversial. Meanwhile, dozens of clinics are popping up across North America offering off-label use of ketamine to treat a wide range of issues. Yet, somehow, ketamine is most often conflated with recreational use because it can give an ecstatic, lucid, out-of-body trip known as a dissociative hallucination. According to several surveys, including one published in the journal Consciousness and Cognition, ketamine has the highest semantic similarity to a near-death experience. In other words, no other drug is going to make you feel like you died and left your body. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. My guest today is Dr. Erica Zelfand, an integrative and functional medicine physician who has written about how to get the most out of ketamine therapy. Erica, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here.
1: So can you give listeners a little background on yourself and how you came to be so interested in psychedelic medicine?
0: Sure. So I am a was a just regular family physician doing primary care, kids and adults. And shortly after opening my practice, realized that a significant percentage of my patient population, both pediatric and adult, were struggling with depression, anxiety, and a slew of other mood imbalances, some of which were just frank, you know, what we would say in medicine, a clinical diagnosis. You know, I could diagnose these people as having this condition or that condition, but a lot of these people just had this sort of general lost the lust for life. And I, I was seeing that this was directly affecting people's physical health outcomes. And that was, for me, a jumping-off place to start exploring more basic mental health support that I could do with people, as well as ways in which I could support people in the more psycho-spiritual place which was tricky for me as a physician, so it often looked like me referring people outward for meditation programs and um, personal growth retreats and things like that. But it wasn't too long before I started. It seemed like every thread I pulled on these topics would eventually lead me to articles and resources and conference on psychedelic healing, uh, which I was very quick to dismiss. um, The first hundred times it it crossed my path. And then after, you know, whatever the nth number of times I realized, you know, every time I'd bump into it, I would get sort of annoyed. And then I realized, no, maybe instead of getting annoyed, this, this keeps coming into my path for a reason. Maybe I... Should check this out. And that led me to attending uh, conferences on the medical use of psychedelics. It also led me to do volunteer work through the Zendo Project and Whitebird and other organizations that do psychedelic support services at festivals. And yeah, I just found the the more I pulled on that string, the deeper and richer my learning got, both as a person and as a healthcare provider.
1: That's awesome. Ketamine is sort of unique in the psychedelic world. How is ketamine able to do what other antidepressants can't? I mean, I think scientists actually aren't entirely sure how it works in the brain, but that maybe isn't surprising because SSRIs, SNRIs, we don't really know how those work in the brain either, if I'm if I'm correct. Uh, but what's the prevailing theory with ketamine?
0: So ketamine is really an interesting molecule in the sense that it's, it's not a new drug by any means. It's been around since the 1960s. But it wasn't until the aughts that words started getting around that it might be useful for depression. Specifically, there was a paper by Carlos Serrate in 2006, in which he was exploring the idea that affecting levels of glutamate in the brain and working through the glutamate system, we might be able to um, penetrate stubborn cases of depression and other mood disorders. So part of what we understand about ketamine really comes not so much from our understanding of how it works for depression, because that's a relatively new understanding that is still being fleshed out, but from 1960s onward, where ketamine was used and is still used as an anesthesia drug. And that mechanism of action largely focuses on something called the NMDA receptor, which stands for N-methyl-D-aspartate. That's a receptor in the brain where the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate can bind, and um, ketamine blocks that receptor site. That is responsible for ketamine's effects as uh, for anesthesia, analgesia, and amnesia, the three A's, as they say um, in the world of anesthesia. But is that how it works as an antidepressant? This is sort of... um, a hot issue right now. There's a bit of debate about that. And my understanding is we don't really know. That's the theory, but there very well may be some other mechanisms at play. Ketamine does affect uh, dopamine as well as other neurotransmitters. Um, and ketamine has also been shown to increase something called BDNP, which um, allows for the growth of new neurons in the brain and for those new neurons not only to grow, but actually to make new connections with one another, to enhance something called brain plasticity, our ability to have new connections in the brain so we can learn new things. So everything I just said might completely go out the window in 10 years (laughs) when we know more, but that seems to be the quick and dirty of what we know right now about ketamine and how it works within these contexts.
1: Right. I like so much that the whole discovery of ketamine's antidepressant mechanism was kind of an accidental discovery. Those researchers you mentioned, I believe, were just looking at glutamate and thought, well, we'll use ketamine because it's a it's an antagonist, um, but and
0: it's cheap, <laughs> so it's really easy it's to work cheap. with in those contexts. Yeah,
1: yeah. So once the word kind of got out, there was kind of like a watershed moment. It seems like where everyone started knowing, oh, the ketamine has this ability to rapidly reduce depression, and 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 some of the statistics that I've seen, some of the clinical research, it says seventy, eighty percent of patients recovered the results can be kind of long lasting and it's very rapid. That's another thing. It kicks in almost like immediately within 24 to 72 hours, which is important because some of the other tools we have for fighting depression can take two weeks. Not everybody responds to them. A lot of people do, and we should definitely have access to those drugs, but they're not perfect. And ketamine is just, it's really creating ripples in this, uh, I guess the field of psychology, but how did that exactly happen? like, so so people started doing these ketamine clinics that are, you know, off-label use of ketamine so people can just go get ketamine if they need it for this. Where did that trend begin and where is that leading us?
0: Yeah, well, I I mean I I would like to know the answer to that question as well. <laughs> you know, I can certainly speculate. I think part of how this all happened is we're really at a crisis point in medicine with respect to mental health. We haven't had significant You know, development of new drugs for depression, anxiety, and a slew of other uh, mental health conditions for quite some time. And we're finding that either antidepressants, conventional antidepressants, don't work as well as we thought they did, or they've stopped working as well as they used to. So, you know, we used to say, you know, it takes about four to six weeks to tell if a drug is working. Now it's more like, okay, now we know more within two to three weeks if it's working or not. But a significant percentage of patients don't respond to these drugs. Or they respond, but the side effects are not tolerable to them. So I think a a big part of why there's been this explosion of interest in ketamine is, frankly, we're desperate. Patients are desperate. Doctors are desperate. We need something new. Is ketamine going to be the, the miraculous drug that we want it to be? You know, time will tell, and there is a lot of criticism about ketamine specifically. You know, some writers and some physicians they actually feel like ketamine is not that effective, and that part of why people are so excited about ketamine is just because it has this very novel mechanism of action. That being said, the the results of the trials we have are pretty compelling. You know that that seventy percent is that's a significant response rate. You know, for any drug for any condition. So I think part of why we're seeing, you know, so many ketamine clinics popping up now are for a few reasons. One is we're desperate. We just need something new. Patients know this, doctors know this, and providers are wanting to fill that demand. And we also can't ignore the fact that, you know, at least here in the United States, you know, medicine is a largely privatized industry here. Ketamine is dirt cheap. The demand for it is high. A doctor's ability to bill for their time is high. And it's a good business model, frankly, to be offering off-label ketamine. You don't bill insurance, it's cash business. And, you know, providers are charging anywhere from like $200 to $700 a treatment, which isn't to say that it's primarily financially motivated, but from a provider's perspective, it's like, okay, here's a new drug, might be able to help a lot of people. I can do this as sort of a side business or make this my full-time gig, make cash money. It's sort of uh, a very, very compelling package for a lot of providers. seems like patients have just been very eager to jump on board and give it a try, and a lot are having great results.
1: Yeah, uh, I have heard so many stories from so many people that it's been effective for them. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up a lot of really great points about this. You know, it is kind of a side business, and I think we've talked about this. There needs to be a little bit more... I guess accountability, you know, some of these clinics just sort of have a side room that they're just putting people in. Not all of them. Some of them really do uh, provide a a large level of care. But, you know, I want to bring up this recent lawsuit um, the Albuquerque Journal reported on, quote, the family of an Albuquerque man who died by suicide has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against a local ketamine infusion clinic, claiming the clinic's negligence in administering the controversial treatment contributed to his psychosis. So this man went to a ketamine clinic and received, quote, four four-hour ketamine treatments over the course of nine days, and the complaint alleges he stabbed himself multiple times, inhaled combustible fuel, and set himself on fire two days after the treatment took place, and he did not survive his injuries. Now, obviously, this is an extreme case, and we should like wait for a lot more info before passing any judgment, but I think this illustrates why you need to be extremely careful when choosing a ketamine clinic, uh, kind of what we talked about in that article I did for Double Blind. So, what should people look for? I mean, if if anyone's listening to this and they're like, I want to try a ketamine clinic, what are some red flags? What are some good things that people should, uh, you know, keep an eye out for? And, and, of course, the cost comes into it, too, because a lot of these treatments um, are not really covered by insurance. So it can be kind yeah. of expensive.
0: Sure. Well, first, I want to say this this case of that that gentleman in Albuquerque. That, I, I mean, when I encountered that story, I was frankly shocked. I know many providers who work with ketamine, and I have never heard anything like that, you know, prior to this article. That being yeah, said, you know, it's relatively new medicine, so we'll see. And, and what's interesting to me is I'm hearing you sort of speaking from the consumer end of like, whoa, I need to be careful picking a clinic. And I'm hearing this from the provider end, and I'm going, whoa. Doctors really need to be careful in picking their patients, (laughs) in screening people appropriately, and monitoring them closely, and picking up on red flags that are that are happening and discontinuing therapy appropriately. I think this also speaks to the problems that can potentially arise when you have providers that are not mental health providers administering a mental health treatment. So what we're seeing nowadays is a lot of these ketamine clinics. That are getting set up they're actually owned and operated by anesthesiologists which is not a bad thing i actually think it's this is a really wonderful thing because anesthesiologists know this drug inside and out they work with it constantly not only are they, do they know how to administer ketamine, but anesthesiologists also know how to very quickly respond to any emergency situations that might arise physically from the use of ketamine. You know, for example, if somebody's blood pressure goes up or they become medically unstable, you know, anesthesiologists are solid on that front. Where they typically are not solid is in psychiatric assessment, right? So um, that's why I would say that when a, a patient is interested in working with ketamine, not to necessarily write off a clinic uh, if it's owned by an anesthesiologist or if the provider is an anesthesiologist, absolutely not, but to work concurrently with someone who is trained in mental health. Doesn't have to be a psychiatrist, can just be a, a, a regular counselor, You know, someone with a master's degree in counseling, but somebody who can check in with that patient, make sure the treatment's going well, assess their you know, psychological health and response and help them sort of see any red flags, you know, and it's called a blind spot for a reason. You can't see your own blind spot, especially if you're ill, right? So I think that that's a hugely important piece is to have somebody keeping an eye on the mental health piece, not just on the on the drug interaction administration piece. Um, personally, I also think that ketamine ketamine works not just through stimulating certain receptor sites in the brain and, um, you know, triggering a neurochemical cascade. It does that. But it also, as a medicine that could be described as a psychedelic when used in certain contexts and at certain doses, it can also push people to have really beautiful and powerful and meaningful insights and experiences that I do believe can be ultimately healing and sometimes even curative for a person. So that's where, when I look at ketamine clinics, um, when I see a small room with no window, fluorescent lights, nothing on the walls, and a machine that administers the ketamine, and the machine makes an annoying humming or buzzing sound, and it's cold in the clinic and there are no blankets, you know, I just look around and I say, this seems like a terrible place (laughs) to have To have a a potentially very vulnerable and or very meaningful emotional mystical experience, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And
0: unfortunately, that does seem to be the setup at a lot of the facilities offering ketamine, not because the owners are stupid and don't care by no means. It's because, you know, the owners and operators are typically anesthesiologists running very busy pain clinics doing ketamine as a side hustle right? So they're sort of just plugging in patients with depression into the same setting as patients coming in for back pain, right? And that's where it's not as ideal.
1: Yeah. And that brings me to integration, which is this concept that you've written about. And I've talked to other people in the ketamine space about, it's very important that you don't just give people this drug and then walk away. You also need to kind of talk to them about their experience and work them through that. If there's no I, I, an important part of this and why it's effective is therapy is involved.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do I do want to say I agree with you. And I also do need to give acknowledgement and props to Raquel Bennett, Cy D. She's the founder of the CREA Institute, the Ketamine Research Institute. Is I was having a chat with her and I was getting all soapboxy about how, you know, I don't think anyone has any business doing ketamine if there isn't therapy involved and you're not integrating it into some kind of counseling. And she she actually pointed something out to me, which I appreciated. She said that some people are so depressed that they can't engage in therapy. Or some people are so acutely suicidal that talking about it is actually not what they need at all. Or they're talked out they've already done it and they're just talked out. You know, when someone is in a very deep major depressive episode, therapy might not be what they need in that moment. Sometimes they really just do need the drug to sort of break the loop and pull them out of the hole. But hopefully once you've done that, there can then be that therapeutic piece. Now, not everyone is in that super, you know, deep hole of major depressive disorder. And Personally, I, I like the idea of using therapy as an adjuvant to ketamine, or rather ketamine as an adjuvant to therapy, because I think the two synergize beautifully. Regardless of, of the dosage of ketamine you're using, you know, the type of therapy differs somewhat, but ketamine can really help people access material that might, under other circumstances, be too painful or too armored in shame to be able to access. And that can lead to profound psychological breakthroughs. And I believe that when that happens and what I've seen, people don't need to go back and continue taking the medicine as frequently or as high of doses because there is a a deeper shift that can happen in one's understanding and in one's ability to lean into life after certain core issues have been dealt with that allows them to actually treat the cause, right? And when you treat the cause, You don't need to keep going back and paying 500 bucks a month to get an IV necessarily.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about integration and what that looks like and the importance of, I guess you would call them hallucinations. Some people say that ketamine is not a psychedelic, but I think that the term psychedelic means mind manifesting and ketamine seems to do that. So, you know, even though it's a dissociative psychedelic, I still consider it you know, but that's that's semantics to me. But there's like this debate about the importance of the hallucinations. Like, are they therapeutic? Are they important to the therapy? Or should you give doses that don't reach that threshold? Like, why is that important? You've also written about how you shouldn't mix benzos with ketamine use. A lot of these clinics are giving people sedatives in addition to the ketamine.
0: Yeah. So, you know, a few things to unpack there. So, you know, this is where How you use ketamine in anesthesia might not be the best way to use ketamine for the treatment of mood disorders, as is the case with benzodiazepines. So oftentimes doctors administer benzodiazepine concurrently with the ketamine to prevent something called dysphoria. And that's pretty much where just like the person feels agitated and confused and a little freaked out by the dissociative effects of the drug. And while that is wonderful for pain management, it does seem to attenuate the antidepressant effects of ketamine. So, you know, that's sort of a a, a rookie move is is to give a patient a benzo while they're getting a ketamine infusion. In terms of the the best way to do it, like whether it's a psychedelic or the sub-psychedelic, there are a, a number of different ways in which we can use ketamine. I personally have my favorites, but ultimately... I think the choice really depends on the unique needs of the patient. And I think one of the wonderful things about ketamine is that it is such a versatile molecule. What we most commonly see is called the Diamond and McShane model. And that is an IV intravenous infusion of ketamine at a dose of around half a milligram of ketamine per kilogram of the body weight of the patient. And in the in the you know jargon, we we say half half a mig per kig. It's my. That's my least favorite. For mo- for most people, that's my least favorite.
2: <laughs> Interesting.
0: Yeah, because it's uh, it's very medicalized. You know, the person sits there with an IV catheter in their arm for forty minutes in a room much like the uninspired environment we already described. Uh, And it's sort of like, okay, we delivered this chemical to your brain and it's going to fix you, you know, go home and come back and we'll repeat it again a few days. The patient doesn't really engage in that process very much. And if the patient is acutely suicidal, you know, that's a different story. Other ways of using ketamine are to do a lower dose of ketamine. You could do it orally. You could do it as as a lozenge. You could do it as a nasal spray to do a lower dose of ketamine. And then while the patient is under the acute effects of ketamine to actually have a therapy session. That's ketamine assisted therapy. That's a wonderful choice for a lot of patients, you know, for the reasons we've already described. Another way to do ketamine is to do a higher dose of ketamine. For this, you know, I I typically recommend doing an intramuscular or subcutaneous injection, more in the range of one to two milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And that is going to trigger, you know, what. We, in our terminology, we would call a psychedelic trip. You know, you could also call it a mystical journey. Um, or a K-hole. Or a K-hole, right, if you will. And in, in that space, you know, the, the person has talking is going to be annoying and not very effective. But after the person has that mystical journey with that medicine, which only lasts about an hour to two hours, you know, average about 75 minutes, but later in that day or the next day, to then unpack that experience with their counselor or their therapist and talk about like what happened, what insights did you have, what did you see, What what does that mean for you, how do you think what you saw there fits into your life, for example. And I've seen people experience some really profound breakthroughs when they've been in that state of consciousness and make some major life changes when they've come out of the medicine after having experiences like that. And then another way to do it is way lower dosage, nasal spray or troche every few days, just at home. This is like, you don't come into the clinic. You just send the patient home with this medicine, typically through a compounding pharmacy. And that's used almost, you know, more like an antidepressant. Just, you know, you take it a couple times a week just to sort of help you maintain a calmer baseline to do your day-to-day life. So yeah, there's there are many ways to skin the ketamine cat <laughs> and they all work. For different kinds of patients, and that is where being able to assess a patient's need becomes important, so that you can match what's best for them.
1: And that's what I like about ketamine; is it is so versatile. It's such a wonderful drug, especially for pain relief. It's used all around the world for that. It's, I believe, the most popular anesthetic on the planet. Um, it is. Yeah, and and for a good reason, you know. It is uh, chemically related to PCP or phencyclodyne, I, I think is kind of mm-hmm. funny, but that's how it was discovered is because yeah. we had PCP, we were giving it to patients for pain, and it was having these really weird side effects, so we tried to find something better, and it's just such an amazing drug. This all brings me to Spravato, which kind of sounds like an Italian piano concerto or something, or right. also known as ketamine. <laughs> I just want to give an aside for listeners that S-ketamine is ketamine. So if you read a news story that says S-ketamine is ketamine-like, it's actually wrong. S-ketamine is ketamine. And Erica, you can explain how stereoisomers work if you want. Sure.
0: Yeah. So, so the, the, the quick and dirty of it is, is that, uh, like many molecules, ketamine is a chiral molecule, C-H-I-R-A-L. And what that means is that ketamine exists in two forms. A left-handed form, which we call s ketamine, and a right-handed form, which is called R ketamine. And these are uh, they're mirror images of one another, sort of like your left hand and your right hand. And when you get a bottle of generic ketamine, that has a combination of s and R ketamine in it. That's called a racemic preparation. It has both le- uh, left-handed and right-handed ketamine in it. The problem, I'm saying I'm I'm doing air quotes, you can't see. The problem with racemic ketamine is it has been off patent for a long time and it's dirt cheap. It's a few dollars for a vial of the stuff. So if you have any kind of incentive to want to make money off of this molecule, you're in trouble because it's generic. So once word got out in the aughts that ketamine had potential for treating depression and other mood disorders there was sort of this silent race that happened among the pharmaceutical companies to figure out a way to somehow make this molecule or a molecule like it patentable ergo profitable i'm sounding a little bit like a like a bitter conspiracy theorist here i do need to pause and say we see this in pharmacology all the time where we have a substance that is generic off patent and then an enantiomer of that molecule is then studied, repatented, and then brought to market. We have that in in mood drugs. We have it in um, ADD medication. We have this in antibiotics. We even have a reflux medication. So this is very common. This is not like a new trick or anything. My 15-year-old anarchist persona, which still rears her head sometimes, wants to say, this is all a money grab. But I do need to say, (laughs) some people do better with some preparations than with the racemic ones. I do need to name that. Time will tell with S-ketamine because it's so new. But long story short, too late, um, a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, found a way to filter ketamine and through that filtration process to discard the R-ketamine, keep the S-ketamine, and use that. And that filtration process to produce the F-ketamine is patentable. And now we have a drug sold and marketed under the name of Spravato, which was approved by the FDA in March of 2019 for the treatment of major depressive disorder in patients on an antidepressant medication.
1: Thank you. That was a really great explanation. Very simple and to the point. So, you know, I've heard that the S-side, S-ketamine seems to have uh, less of a hallucinogenic effects on the brain. But as we kind of spoke, that might make it less effective at treating depression. But it does seem like, like you said, some people respond really well to it. I've heard that some people don't respond to S-ketamine as well as racemic ketamine. You know, it seems like there needs to be a lot more research, and I think that's kind of what happened in the UK recently. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, can you tell sure. us exactly what happened there?
0: Well, I mean, my, my understanding of what happened in the UK is that, you know, as, as often happens in places that have socialized medicine where the taxpayers are actually collectively paying for treatment, the assessment there was this drug is too expensive. It's too new. We don't know enough about it. And for how expensive it is, we can't justify the cost. Am I am I missing something? Do you
1: No, I think that's correct. It was about ten thousand dollars a dose uh, is what I read on the BBC, I believe. Hmm.
0: Here in the States, bravado comes in two dosage preparations, one of which is about five hundred and fifty dollars U.S. The other one is about eight hundred and fifty dollars U.S. And for a patient to undergo spravato therapy, the treatment protocol is for the first month of treatment, the patient comes into the office and receives the therapy twice a week for a month. Then it's once a week for the next month, and then it's at intervals thereafter. So that's a lot of money. And that cost that I've quoted there, that's that's just for the drug. That does not include the doctor's time or observation costs or anything else. Um, And so we actually are having an issue here in the United States where, you know, people are like, yay, the FDA approved it. That means insurance is going to cover it. Well, not so fast. I mean, what insurance company is going to want to spend that much money? And it's not just a one-time thing. This is an ongoing therapy. So to actually get a U.S.-based insurance company to cover Spravato therapy, if you're a provider filling out that prior authorization form, good luck you are going to bang your head against the wall. It is a hugely frustrating process to get an insurance carrier to approve payment for Spravato. They do not want to do it. They want to see that a patient has tried three or more antidepressant drugs from two or more different drug classes. And when you fill out the form, if the patient has depression and bipolar, if you put bipolar first on the form, it's going to get denied. You have to put major depressive disorder first. It's just there are all kinds of hoops to jump through because it's expensive. And it needs to be because Johnson & Johnson spent millions of dollars developing this drug and funding the research for it. So we're sort of seeing the, the light side and the dark side, right, of having a, a capitalized medical system here, right? There's incentive for developing new drugs, but someone has to pay that price. And it usually ends up being the end user.
1: Yeah, and all of it seems a little absurd to me it's so expensive when we have racemic ketamine which you said multiple times is so cheap so cheap
0: like un- uh, like under four dollars for a vial cheap
1: right and also this is johnson and johnson this is a company that has been slammed with lawsuits for lying to their customers about what was in their tack. you know uh there's right. according to the guardian the company covered up evidence of abestos in their product for more than 40 years which gave dozens of women maybe hundreds of women ovarian cancer and then they were more recently sued by Kroger and Walgreens for price fixing their drug Remicade. None of this is related to ketamine, but, you know, the big question is why trust this company? Why are they trying to squeeze into this psychedelic space? You know, it I at least raises eyebrows. I mean, I, I don't try to be hating on Big Pharma just to hate on them. There's right. tactics there.
0: Yeah, and and I you know I will I will say I've spoken to I I probably should not say who so I, I will not but I've I've spoken to somebody who is high high up enough but I won't say with what organization that when this individual reviewed the literature specifically on esketamine they said you know frankly the FDA I don't know why they approved it because the studies are not done with enough rigor and there weren't enough of them and the uh, the proposed explanation was. Because of this novel mechanism of action, the FDA may, be, may have gotten excited and approved this a little too hastily. You know, t- time will tell. As far as why, why we should trust Johnson & Johnson, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think we need to decide whether or not we need to trust Johnson & Johnson. I think we need to decide whether or not we need this new drug enough to give it a try. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And their motivations are their business. And, and my motivation is to see people heal. So if if I'm working with a patient and what they're doing isn't working and they're not healing and we need to try something new, you know, I'll reach for Spervato and I'll try it with them because I want to see them get better. Yeah, That's my bottom line.
1: That's a a really great perspective.
0: Because if I'm going to have this anti-pharma perspective, I'm very quickly going to be out of a job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, yeah, you can't just say pharma does you know, only bad things. We're, we're very quick to talk about that on this program, that like the prevailing narrative that, you know, Big Pharma is responsible for this opioid overdose crisis is not entirely accurate. Um, no. Yeah. We don't have to go into the weeds. If people are interested, That they can listen to any of the other episodes on opioids. But what, what do you think the implications are for, for the future of psychedelic medicine, thanks to Spravato? I mean, some people have... I read criticism that it's given the whole science kind of a black eye because some stuff suggests it's not as effective as advertised. And so next year, at the end of next year, we're going to be seeing psilocybin become a prescription drug and MDMA become a prescription drug if everything goes to plan. Some people are, you know, concerned that esketamine and Johnson and Johnson this whole thing is going to maybe influence that negatively.
0: Hmm that's an interesting point. I guess I don't really see them as being that connected. The way in which Spravato is being used and administered, which is actually one of my criticisms of Spravato, it comes in this prepackaged dosage format. So the clinician has no say, really. Clinician has a choice between two dosages, and that's it. And so that does not allow the, the clinician as much control over how much they deliver their patient. So it's harder to get a patient into that psychedelic range, you know, using just bravado as directed, you know, in overall, I would say with this matter of psychedelics becoming accepted is we sort of know how not to do it, right? Which was how it was done in the, in the Tim Leary generation of just like, get everyone to take just as many people as possible to take as many of these illicit substances as possible and wake up, you know, tune in, if you will. And, and so now you know, that, I think that left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, you know, people who were both into the psychedelic medicine movement and those who were not, I think everyone was like, okay, that, that didn't work. So now there's this sort of different approach, which is like, all right, let's like change out of the tie dye, put on a suit. Let's get some medical degrees. (laughs) Let's get some studies going here and let's actually see if this medicine is up to snuff. And then let's, not back alley this, let's, let's negotiate for the actual rightful above board place in medicine of this work. I think that overall the trend is upward. And I explain this <clears throat> to my patients that have chronic illnesses. I use the same analogy where if, you, if you're drawing this, you know, progression, the graph, the overall trend is upward, but within that upward trend, there are dips. So are there going to be little things here and there that seem like they're stopping the momentum or even pushing things in the opposite direction? Sure. But is the overall progression one toward acceptance? I think so. And I think that Spravato getting approved by the FDA is actually a step in the right direction. I think it is a step toward progression. It's at least psychiatry and the FDA and other organizations with gravitas admitting what we have thus far isn't working that well, and we need to think outside of the box. If nothing else, we have that. And so I actually think this is all very promising. And frankly, you know, Johnson & Johnson, thanks for throwing millions of dollars into this research that nobody else was going to be able to <laughs> afford to do. I think it's a matter of time before people go, hey, well, if this really expensive therapy works so well, why don't we just use the cheap off-label, you know, and go that route? And then maybe that'll lead to generic ketamine getting approved. So I, you know, I am actually, I'm seeing this whole thing as a, as a net positive.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there is a lot more reason to be optimistic than cynical, but uh, <laughs> I kind of have that impulse. But, you know, I want to kind of talk about some of the extreme caution that is wrapped up in spravado. Like, for example, you know, you talked about one of the many ways to take ketamine is with a nasal spray that you take home. You can also do that with lozenges. And these are not if I'm correct, they're not very highly psychedelic. Like you can't just take the whole box and you won't really feel anything. They're just more of like uh, sub doses or you know threshold to relieve the depression, but more of like a kind of at a home thing. Um, but you can't do that with Spravato. You have to go to a clinic. You have to be there. You have to stay there for two hours. They spray it up your nose in this room. I mean, is that too cautious or it's cer- it's certainly cumbersome
0: and. A general frustration that I'm having with the medicalization of psychedelic medicine or the acceptance of it is it's really pushing out the practitioner in private practice. It's making it very hard. Um, If you are a busy clinic with a bunch of rooms and you have to have a patient sit in a room for two hours, that stinks. You know, that's a hit to your business model. But if you're a practitioner in private practice and you only have one room and you have a patient coming for Spravato and they're tying up your room for two hours, that's a significant hit to your business. That's a frustration that a lot of people have expressed with Spravato is it's not financially feasible for a lot of practitioners to be doing it this way, but it has to be done that way because of the REMS program. So... I think part of why it's so strict right now is is not because they're trying to, you know, make it difficult for providers, but because they don't want anything bad to happen. And, and this is part of, I think, the patience that both as consumers and providers, we really need to muster up and maintain some patience here, is if we're trying to advance this medicine, This process is going to move along pretty much at a snail's pace, and we are going to have to prove its safety and efficacy at every step of the way, and it is going to be so annoying (laughs) for a while. I think eventually, you know, the um, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy Program, the RENS program, you know, I think there will be a renegotiation of that eventually, but I think for the time being, this is what we have to work with. I think that's also why, you know, somewhat as a tangent here, but on the same note, you know, we recently had uh, MDMA become approved for expanded access, which it's a net positive, right? It's a step in the right direction. But there is this completely, in my opinion, asinine requirement that of the two therapists that are present during the session, one of the therapists has to be an MD or a PhD clinical psychologist. MDs and PhD clinical psychologists typically are not trained in and do not want to do eight hour sessions of intensive therapy. That's the work of a therapist, of a counselor. So now we sort of have this expanded access program and we're like, uh, how do we implement this? Like, what MD? You know, not a lot of MDs are actually trained in therapy. They want to come in, supervise, and have a therapist take it over. But, you know, I suspect all of this is going to work itself out. And as this medicine, Demonstrates that it is safe and effective. I think a lot of these restrictions around it will loosen with time, and in the meantime, we just need to be patient. And then when we get, you know, impatient, we just need to bitch about it among ourselves and live with it because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's what we have to work with for now.
1: Yeah, I guess I get a little impatient about the whole thing because you know I've been following psychedelic science like this for about a decade, and it's like, why is it taking so long to get out there? Um, But it's
0: taking so long.
1: Yeah. And well,
0: maybe now that we have this, you know, big corporate interest, it'll move a little faster.
1: That is a concern of a lot of people, though, um, you know, in the psychedelic community. Are you familiar with the decriminalized nature movement? Yes. Yeah. I think their argument is pretty compelling that, you know, at least for plant psychedelics, that people should be able to have access to them. You know, psychedelics are so great for healing mental health, but they also are good for just... Regular use. And in my opinion, to me, it's a freedom of consciousness argument. Like you should be able to alter your consciousness to a degree that you see fit as long as you're not hurting yourself or others. And psychedelics are pretty safe. So I think some people are really concerned that the the corporate interest, the medical interest could, you know, put a clamp down on. Well, you can't really make it more prohibitive than it already is. But you know what I mean? Like that, that concern is valid, I think. And even though I'm not sure how much weight I would give to it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think you bring up a really good point is these substances have demonstrated, you know, and are currently demonstrating remarkable therapeutic potential for diagnosable conditions. Right. I think that they do have a rightful place in medicine, but yeah, like you, you know, I I do feel a bit nervous about if these substances become overly medicalized, what's going to happen then, you know, just for example, meditation, right? Meditation is a wonderful treatment tool for high blood pressure, for depression, for anxiety. If you don't have any of those conditions, you should still meditate. Everyone should make yeah. it, right? Um, yeah, and I'm absolutely. not saying that everyone should use psychedelics, um, but I am saying psychedelics are are a tool, right? It might take this getting medicalized first before we get to that place of this becoming something that we can use to, as Michael Pollan says, to treat the well, Right. Um, Like with cannabis, we had to demonstrate that cannabis, I'm saying we, I'm, you know, wasn't part of this movement, but um, I don't, I I personally don't use cannabis, but you know, there had to be a demonstration that cannabis had a therapeutic and medicinal effect. And then first we saw, you know, okay, it's approved for medical use. And then we saw the decriminalization and, and this, this process may be similar to that. Something that worries me personally is I'm really concerned that, you know, big, Corporate entities are going to come in and start opening up, say, psilocybin treatment facilities, you know, hire a bunch of master's program therapy students and pay them $20 an hour to supervise, for example, psilocybin therapy sessions, Um, which on the one hand improves access, but on the other hand, I also think really limits how deep someone might be able to heal with the medicine, you know, as opposed to having... You know, people that have done the MAPS training program and are licensed therapists and deserve to make a living wage, you know, who have been waiting decades to be able to do this work. So that's a whole different can of worms, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It does seem like a lot of these companies that are trying to one day offer psilocybin or MDMA treatments, I'm talking about companies like MindMed. Or Compass Pathways. They are starting off with ketamine clinics. Field Trip Health just opened one in Toronto recently. So I think the ketamine clinic trend is kind of spreading in Canada now. And, and MindMed owns several ketamine clinics across North America. So there's kind of this overlap. I went to a lecture with somebody who had a ketamine clinic, and they're like designing an MDMA therapy like retreat center. I saw the schematics for it. It's like these beautiful little huts where they would have therapy sessions and there's water and trees and it was just like very zen, very beautiful. And there these people in the ketamine treatment space they're absolutely ready to jump on these other drugs as soon as they become approved. So I would just hope that they, you know, do best practices.
0: Yeah, me too. And I will say, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, it's a really exciting time to get into psychedelics.
1: <laughs> it absolutely is. And honestly, it's doing better than cannabis right now in Canada. The cannabis stocks seem to be taking a big hit lately. People are saying it's growing pains. But psychedelics, I'm hearing all these people talking about it's the next billion dollar industry. And Mind Men got, you know, 50 or 60 million dollars investment. I should double check that number. But people see it as a cash cow and there are pros and cons to that they see
0: it as a cash cow because they're right. You know, Yeah, there's incredible, there's incredible money-making potential here. And I just hope that, and I'm not against anyone making money. Like, you yeah. know, I'd love to make some money too. That sounds great. Right. <laughs> but, but my, my hope is that people are doing it with integrity, you know, and I'm sure some people are not doing it with integrity and I'm sure that others are, and yeah. that it's more than just a financial interest that is motivating, uh, people turning their attention toward this work, you know, but that's, that's between them and, and their consciousness. I'll let them take a high dose of ketamine and figure that out for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's, their, that's their business, you know?
1: Well, those were all my questions. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about on this topic?
0: Yeah, I think there is something else I would like to say. So there has been some observation that ketamine's efficacy has been dropping. And I think part of that is because both prescribers and consumers have been really eager to jump on the ketamine bandwagon, and to start using it. But not everybody needs ketamine. This is actually another insight that comes from Dr. Raquel Bennett, where, you know, there are all kinds of things that can manifest like depression, like grief, stress, physical illness, unexpressed anger. Conditions like that don't warrant treatment with ketamine. And something that I'm seeing of the north american mentality that is sadly spilling over into the realm of ketamine and psychedelic medicine in general and microdosing is we really want a quick fix we really want to have an external thing help us quickly and sometimes the path to healing is not linear and sometimes it requires doing our due diligence with Uh, eating healthy and exercising and, you know, putting our computers away when it's bedtime and having meaningful social connections with others, engaging in counseling, getting out in nature, et cetera, et cetera. Ketamine cannot do any of those things for anybody. What ketamine may be able to do is if someone is in a real slump, ketamine might be able to get that person to a higher baseline functional level that then allows them to engage in these other self-healing, self-help practices. But ketamine, as with any psychedelic medicine, um, is only a part of the medicine. It's a catalyst for the healing, but it is not the healing in and of itself. So I think anyone that's interested in trying ketamine or any other psychedelic medicine really needs to understand that and and know that to really get outcomes at a certain point, you're going to have to lean in and you're going to have to engage in the process. And there are going to be some sacrifices that come with that and they're going to be insanely worth it.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. This is such a great conversation and I feel like, you know, it covers so many bases that people people are very interested in ketamine and I think that interest is warranted. But I think people need to know a lot more about it. And I think this covers a lot of that. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, you bet. And uh, for further reading and inspirations and general blatherings from me, people are more than welcome to visit my website, which is drzelfand.com. That's D-R-Z-E-L-F-A-N-D.com.
1: Yep. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Sounds great. All All
2: right. Thanks so much. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on other Facebooks like Facebook, Facebook, Facebook and Friendster. Narcotica is an ad-free program, so we'd like to give a shout out to one of our supporters on Patreon. Stereo is a New Orleans based, volunteer-run harm reduction group, and they're doing great work helping people get access to safe drug use and safe sex supplies. And they're one of our longest supporters on Patreon. Their contributions help keep this show free of corporate influence and they keep the lights on around here. Thanks for being with us for so long, guys. You can check out their stuff at trystereo.org there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to get your own shout out on Narcotica become a patron and contact us people that donate more than $3 even just once will also get some cool crack pipe stickers in the mail Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Zachary Siegel and Troy Farah our theme music is by Glassboy additional music is by Chris Zabrinsky. and I'm your co-producer Garrett give us a follow where you get your podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it and be sure to let all your friends know stay safe everyone, have a nice night